Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our study of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 52. We've come to the fourth commandment. It speaks of of worship and gathering together and the emphasis in our song service this morning on the, the church as we meet on the first day of the week. Though the commandment speaks of the seventh day, so we're going to be looking at that. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, one of the areas that was discussed was how people felt about work. The authors found in interviewing people that only 25% of employees gave their best effort on the job, and that another 20% of the average worker's time was wasted. That book was written, published 32 years ago. I don't know that those numbers have improved in that time. Just yesterday, I I read an article that began with this sentence, move over bare minimum Mondays and quiet quitting and make way for Gen Z's latest work trend, lazy girl jobs. Now, Gen Z are those born between 1996 and 2012, approximately different ones have different numbers. But I don't know that the concerns over generational work ethics are anything new. The accusation's been leveled against the millennials of of being lazy, and yet this concern about work and the drudgery of it goes back a ways. And while I find the generational divisions and characteristics interesting, the truth is that heart heart issues are cross-generational. The the wickedness of our hearts, the struggles of our, our lives are not set to one generation. In fact, listen to the words of uh, another American. He said, quote, They talk of the dignity of work, nonsense. Dignity is in leisure. Those were the words of Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. He was born in 1819 and died 132 years ago. But you know, the fourth commandment actually addresses the issue of labor and leisure. It goes to the issue of work and rest. And it helps us to understand God's perspective. It serves us well to consider God's perspective on how our activity should demonstrate our love for the Lord and promote worship of Him. In fact, the first four commandments really provide instruction as to how we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what we have considered in these first four commandments is, first of all, that we are to love God supremely. It tells us who we are to worship, that we're to worship the only true God. Then we're to esteem Him reverently, that that we're to worship Him in such a way that He is honored and glorified, that we worship Him spiritually, that we understand that we don't use images for worship aids. We considered last week we're to esteem him reverently that his name is holy. 
And so we would honor his holy name. This morning, I want us to see that this commandment really is encouraging us that we are to praise God regularly. And it speaks to our faithfulness in worship. And what we see in these first four commandments is because God is the only true God, He deserves and demands that we worship Him rightly, reverently, and regularly. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that by worshiping God consistently, as He deserves and expects, that you demonstrate that your spiritual rest is in Christ. So we're going to see the New Testament application of the lesson that we can learn from this Old Testament law. And so as we come to this fourth commandment dealing with worship, it's the longest of the commandments. It consists of 98 words in Exodus in the New King James that we'll read in just a moment. It's 135 words in Deuteronomy. Contrast that to the sixth and the eighth commandments, which are only four English words, and actually only two Hebrew words. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot of discussion. The basic elements of Bible study are asking several questions. The first one deals with observation. What does the passage say? The second one is interpretation. What does the passage mean? And the third one is application. How does this passage apply to my life? Well, we're going to seek to address those this morning and understand that the vast amount of the debate and discussion come in that area of application. What bearing does this command have on believers in the New Testament? And so that's what I want us to look at as we consider this. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to read both the commandment in Exodus and Deuteronomy because I, I want us to see there are actually differences in how it is presented. So if you have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 20, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now I'd invite you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's on page 125 in our pew Bibles, the Bibles there in the chairs, because the explanation is different. The statement is the same, but the explanation is different. And I want us to see both the explanations so that we can understand this commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 5, look at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we pray that we truly would 
worship you reverently and regularly. Help us to understand your word and know the proper applications for us in our day and that we would truly give you honor and glory and show show our love. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. What we're seeing in this passage is that by worshiping God consistently as he deserves and would expect from us, that we are demonstrating that we really have found rest in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to develop that so we can see how we're finding that from this. But the first thing that I want to consider is what is commanded. We see that in verse 8, and it's really pretty straightforward. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. At first glance, that's telling us what it says. But how does that apply? Well, what does it mean to remember the Sabbath day. For, for Israel, this included a, a covenantal obligation to hold this day as a present priority. And so when we speak of it, it it's re- really referring to a reserve and preserving the day. So what I want us to see is that, first of all, faithfulness involves reflection and priority. When we remember, it doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I know what day of the week it is or where we are in the calendar. Sometimes we're surprised by that. I look at it like, we're already at the end of July? You mean school starting? Where did the summer go? And my wife says, well, when you spend several weeks out of the country, that's where your summer goes. But this indicates much more than I know where we are on the calendar. Let me illustrate that May 29th is the day that I need to remember. That's our anniversary. For me to properly remember that, it means more than just saying as I'm going out the door, hey, today's our anniversary, see you later. No, if I say that, there better be more remembering later on. There there better be some show of remembrance, whether with a a card, a gift, with flowers, chocolates, dinner out, and and I think I've done each of those at some point over the last 36 years. Um, There needs to be a remembrance. Last year, I took my wife to the Coliseum for our 35th anniversary. I thought it was fitting since we got married in the War Memorial Chapel. Our daughter, Caitlin, said, it sounds better if you say you took her to Rome. It's like, okay. (laughs) But the point is, when we remember an anniversary, we say, that's a special day. It means valuing the date. It it requires taking thought and time. And so this command is value the Sabbath. Israel is being instructed that they had a responsibility to remember the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath refers to the time of rest. So the second thing that we see in this is faithfulness involves consecration. Keep it holy. It was to be set apart. It was to be remembered as a a day of ceasing from the normal routine, that other days were, were different, that this was a day that belonged to Yahweh, for it is a holy day unto the Lord. It was to be for holy purposes. The command is worded in such a way that Israel would remember they have a special relationship with God. So how is that to be fulfilled? That's the second thing I want us to see. How is this commandment fulfilled? In verses 9 and 10, give some specifics there. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. And so you're not to work, you or your kids or your servants or your animals or the strangers that were part of Israel. 
It's interesting because Amos had to confront the shopkeepers because they were trying to do business on the Sabbath. But the first thing that I want us to understand from this is that productive labor is part of God's plan for our lives. They had six days to conduct business as usual, and God established the pattern of working six days and resting one. That work was not the result of the fall of sin because God worked before that. God is the first worker. He, He brings dignity to work. Adam was given tasks to do in the garden before he sinned. Now, the fall created the difficulty of work, the sweat, the hardness of it because of the fall, but work can be for the glory of God. And it's important that we value it and assume that the Bible values and shows the necessity of work, that it was instituted by God. And the principle is, to, is six to one, work to rest, that we have a responsibility and an obligation to work hard when it's time to work and then rest in the Lord. You know, we live in a culture that promotes the five-day work week, which is fine, but if 20% of the time is wasted, as that book says, then we're down to a reality of four-day work week. Well, that gives us time then to do other things for God and to work. That allows people another day to work on other endeavors and keep in mind that there's a day that we can serve the Lord. The opportunity to invest in ministry, to do household chores, to get the things done that we need to do, and and understand that all honest and upright work done for God's glory is sacred, that we would do all to the glory of God. So students, school starting up, that includes your homework. That includes your chores. That includes cleaning and straightening. That, that includes the, what seem to be mundane things that we would do those to the glory of God. And that's expected because our work matters to God. When I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell our, our teens as we'd prepare for a mission trip, i say, you know, when we go on this mission trip, when we work, we're going to work hard. And when we play, we'll play hard. And when we rest, we'll rest hard because we're going to be exhausted. We want, but we're going to put our whole heart into whatever we're doing. That ought to be our attitude, because productive labor is God's plan for our lives. But we also see that spiritual fellowship is part of God's plan for your life. That God's intent for the Sabbath was a day of rest from labor, and it signified that special relationship that Israel had with God. In fact, it's interesting, when you read through Scripture, up until Israel's exodus from Egypt, we have no record of the command to keep the Sabbath. The first mention of the Sabbath is in Exodus 16, verse 23, when God instructs Israel to gather enough manna for two days. Because, and it says in that verse, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So for Israel to keep the Sabbath, it was to the Lord. It meant that they were giving that day to glorify God. It was not a day for sloth or inactivity, but for spiritual service. And part of that was for Israel to come together in a corporate gathering for worship. Leviticus 23 verse 3 speaks of that that it was a day of holy assembly, of sacred assembly. And this was extremely serious for Israel. In fact, it states in Exodus 31, verse 15, that the penalty for violating the Sabbath day was the death penalty. 
And there's an illustration of this found in Exodus or in Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 32. There was a man that was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who caught him didn't know what to do about this. So they bring him to Moses, and, that, and, and Moses, that is the second of four times that Moses seeks God's direction in how to apply the Mosaic law, and God tells him, quote, the man must surely be put to death. Oh, we read that and think, that sounds harsh. I mean, for doing yard work, for picking up sticks, Well, for an Israelite to disregard the keeping of the Sabbath was to disregard the covenant. It was to disregard God because the Sabbath day was given as a sign of God's covenant for Israel's promises to Moses. The Mosaic covenant, when God established it, gave a promise. And there's also a sign with each covenant. So in the Old Testament, when, when there's the covenant with Noah that God promises that he will not flood the earth again, the sign was the rainbow. And it wasn't just for Noah. In fact, it says in, in, chapter, in, in Genesis 9, verses 12 and 13, it's for every creature and for perpetual generations that every time we see the rainbow, that is a testimony of God's faithful promise that he will not destroy the, again, the earth again with a flood, that we can trust him. The sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. Well, the keeping the Sabbath was the covenant sign for the Mosaic law. And we find that in Exodus chapter 31. In Exodus 31, verse 12, that says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 13, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then in verse 16, it says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generation as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the keeping of the Sabbath was the covenant sign of the Mosaic law. Now, I'm stressing this because there's a unique significance for Israel. And we need to recognize that because when the questions come up, well, how does this apply to us? Understand there was a special part of this that was for Israel that does not apply to us today. But do you understand why the Pharisees were so concerned about the keeping of the Sabbath? Now, they had gone to extremes. They had developed an entire system. In fact, the the Talmud had 24 chapters, the rabbinic interpretation of the law had 24 chapters devoted to how do we keep the Sabbath day? Because they wanted to make sure people weren't doing work. And so you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. Well, what's a burden? Well, they determined that anything that weighed more than a dried fig was a burden. So, you know, your cell phone, (laughs) that probably weighs more than a dried fig. And they did make the exception that if you, know, if you have to pick up a child, that's okay. You can do that, but that child can't have anything in their hand. If they have something in their hand, then you're lifting a burden. And so you couldn't do that. They, they had another rule. Ladies could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath. 
I guess they figured whatever happened next would be work. <laughs> I might be wrong. If your house caught fire on the Sabbath, you could rescue any scripture you had, but you couldn't take any clothes other than what you were wearing. You could spit into a handkerchief or on the rocks, but you couldn't spit on the ground. Because if you spit on the ground and then scuffed it with your sandal, it was considered plowing and watering. I mean, so basically, your righteousness was determined by which way you spit. And, and it got so extreme, and yet if you go to Israel today, even when we were there, we made sure that we weren't checking into a new hotel on the Sabbath day because some of you had that experience and the problems of that. But we were told which elevator not to use on the Sabbath. And when we were there, we had more than one Sabbath because there were special feast days that they considered Sabbath. So we had a couple of Sabbaths back to back. And they said, you don't want to use that elevator because it stops at every floor going up and down. And the reason for that was if, if a Jewish person pushed the button, they were working. Well, this is the extreme that it went to. But understand, their concern was there was a death penalty. So this was very serious, and human nature looks for loopholes. What can I do without violating the Sabbath? I mean, we were already thinking, okay, how does this apply to us today? And the problem with the Pharisees was they lost sight of the very purpose for which this relationship was established. That they had a special relationship with God and what he had done. And, and that's the third thing I want you to see, the, why this commandment was given. And, and we, we have the explanation, and I'm giving it from Exodus, where we are, though we saw a different explanation in Deuteronomy, but it says, in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, he blessed the Sabbath and set it apart as holy. Verse 11 is looking back to creation that this day was set apart. And so it's a reminder to Israel that you are serving the creator of the universe, that you are worshiping the one who created everything. And I think that's a great reminder for us, that when we come together, we're serving the God who created everything, and he knows our needs. And so they could trust him, first of all, it would glorify God as creator. That's the first thing that we see in this. He's the creator. He created in six days and then rested. Well, why did God rest? Was he tired? You know, of course not. But it was a rest of satisfaction. In fact, it's interesting that when you read through Genesis 1, you find over and over with each day of creation, and God saw what he had done, and it was good. But it's not until the very end, after everything is created, it says, and God saw that it was very good. It was the satisfaction of the completion of that. He's the creator. He's created us. He knows our needs. And so secondly, he is the provider. Regular worship trusts God as the provider, that, that he can meet needs. He knows the rhythm of work and rest. And, and I think we realize, well, we're not under the Jewish law, that you really can't worship God properly without structuring our time in such a way to set apart this time. In fact, it's interesting, one of the reasons Bill Gates rejected Christianity was he said it's very inefficient to give one day of the week to, to worship. Well, I guess if you're your own God, yes. But if you want to worship the creator of the universe 
who will meet our needs as we trust him, that brings it into a different perspective. But understand, as, I, as I've mentioned, this is brought in, in in Exodus. There's no mention of Sabbath rest from Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, until Exodus chapter 16. That God created the heavens and earth. He rested that rest of satisfaction. I, I doubt that Adam rested that day. He, you know, he hadn't done much work. He, was only, he hadn't even been alive for 24 hours yet. It was not a rest of exhaustion, but rejoicing and And in the garden, work was not going to be difficult. It was fellowship with God. But when Israel was in Egypt, I hardly think they got one day a week off. In fact, Egypt didn't have a seven-day week. They had a ten-day week. And so they they were slaves, and so they were working. And by instituting the Sabbath day for Israel... And as you read through the Old Testament, you also find there were Sabbath years that every seventh year the fields were to rest. God was showing that he would provide, that he would give them enough of a crop in the sixth year to get them through the seventh year and until the harvest time at the end of the eighth year. They could trust God. Well, what's human nature do? You know what? If I plant that extra year, I can get ahead financially. And that's what Israel did. And that's why they went into the Babylonian captivity. God said, you did not rest the fields for, I will take those Sabbath years back and you will spend 70 years in captivity and your fields will rest. Because they didn't obey God, they didn't honor God, they didn't trust him. Well, well, we're not under the law. Is there not also that temptation that, you know what, if I, if I work on Sunday instead of going to church, and I'm not talking works of necessity, but simply for finances, I can get time and a half. When I was in Maine, we had a lady call the church one day. She'd got one of our, our church flyers, and she, she was really interested. We talked. She said, you know, I'd really like to come, but, you know, if I work Sunday, I make more money. And she didn't have to work Sunday. It was optional. This wasn't a work of necessity or requirement. We understand those are, and we'll, we'll see that when we get to what this day is for. But she, she just saw this was good money. And she called a few different times. We had good conversations, but you know, she never came. Because hearing God's word was not the priority that her wealth was. And so we have to be careful because even as Christians, we can be tempted to be motivated by money and rather than by glorifying God. If we make decisions that prioritize wealth over worship and service, that's a problem. What is it that we're investing in? See, the day looked back to creation, but it also looks to redemption. And that's why we read the Exodus passage, because it points to coming out of Egypt. And so regular worship praises God as our Redeemer. Now, for Israel, they saw that they had been rescued from Egypt. There was a deliverance that God had done. But God's redemption includes restoration and rest. So the Sabbath was actually a symbol, or as Colossians chapter 2 says, a shadow of things to come. The Sabbath was to point to Jesus Christ. And that helps us to understand that God's redemptive work That's why we're not here on the seventh day of the week. We're here on the first day of the week. Because we're remembering redemption. 
Now, there are people who would say we're wrong for meeting the the first day of the week instead of the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists. There were Seventh-day Baptists years ago, and they would say we're wrong. I said, no, we are worshiping because we're pointing to redemption. And Colossians 2, verse 16 says, and I want want you to hear this because this is going to help us when we get to the next point in the applications. In Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, let no one judge you regarding festival, that is feast days, or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So the Old Testament festivals, the feast, Passover, and, and these, they were shadows pointing to Christ. The monthly celebrations, and if you follow the context, the weekly Sabbaths were all pointing to Jesus Christ. They were shadows. He's the substance. So we're not under this command that we must follow these dictates or what the Pharisees have done, but we have principles that I think are helpful for us. And that's the fourth thing I want us to see, how the commandment governs us today. What are some principles that can help guide our lives? The first one is that every day should be dedicated to honoring the Lord. Six days you shall work. Rest one day. We need to live each day seeking to glorify God. He should have a priority in every day, not just one day a week. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In elsewhere in, in Colossians and in Ephesians, it talks about when we're working that we're not to be eye service just doing it when the boss is watching. No, but we're to do it to please God because he's always watching. And so our prayer ought to be, when I went to see Mark Roberts in the hospital, I said, well, this, you know, we're talking about this wasn't really what you planned this day. And he said, you know, I pray each day that I would live that day to please the Lord and that his will would be done. That's how we ought to all start our day. That whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. This is his day. Because that's the attitude then that teaches us to number our days to gain a heart of wisdom, as Psalm 90 verse 12 says. It recognizes that our days belong to God. And so again, all honest and upright work done for God's glory is sacred. That Christians ought to be the best workers in the workplace because we're doing it to please God. If you are lazy during the week, you're not keeping the spirit of God's plan for work and worship. And understanding that laziness does not honor God. Laziness will never result in faithfulness. But the second thing that we see is the New Testament highlights Christ's redemptive work and emphasizes the Lord's day as the day that believers gather. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it is, John says, I being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. It says, when the Sabbath was passed. It's the first day of the week. The first day of the week is when the church was born. When you look at Leviticus 23, verse 15, it it tells you how you get the numbering and, and to Pentecost, and it was after seven Sabbaths the next day, first day of the week. So we meet to celebrate the resurrection. When we come together, we we talk about that on Resurrection Sunday, but frankly, that's why we meet the first day of the week, 
is because of the resurrection, the birthday of the church. It's when the New Testament church met in the first day of the week. Paul said that's when you set aside for the offering. And the, the shadow becomes the substance in Christ. So he is our spiritual rest. Therefore, it's not the day in the same context. The Passover lambs pointed to the Lamb of God. The Sabbath rest pointed to the rest in Christ. I love what commentator B.B. Warfield said. He said, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on that resurrection morn. And so we meet the first day of the week. But I would say there's several things about it. We're not under this restrictive straitjacket of the Sabbath requirements. But the third thing we see is the, the Lord's Day is a day for worship. That it's characterized by seeking to honor and glorify Him. And, and one of the dangers, and I know a danger of a message like this, is that we start saying, okay, so what am I allowed to do on Sunday? You know, can I watch a football game? Can I pick up sticks in the yard? And, and we start thinking, and if we're not careful, we, we have to guard against our own form of legalism that wants to know how far can I go before I violate it. And we start writing our own Talmud. Now, I, I remember as a teenager, we were visiting my grandparents in Holland, Michigan on a Sunday. We were there for several days, and we were there on a Sunday, and we'd gone to church. And at our home on the other side of Michigan, we got a newspaper every day of the week. We got seven days a week, it got delivered to our house, and so Sunday afternoon, I would read the paper. Okay, I read the comics on Sunday afternoon. And so we're in, we're in Holland, Michigan, and my grandparents didn't get a newspaper, so I decided I'd go to the store and buy one. Well, everybody else is resting, I, was, I had my license, I drove to the store. Now, Holland is a very strong Dutch Reformed area, as you might figure by the name. And most stores were closed. There were very few stores open. And the type of convenience store that was open probably didn't have the reputation for the most wholesome merchandise. So I got a paper, came back. Nobody said anything, but I, I was emotionally aware enough to realize I probably shouldn't have done that. That was not looked upon favorably. And in that culture, that was a concern. Now, I didn't have a conviction then and don't today about reading the paper on Sunday. We're not under the Mosaic law. But on the other side, we have to be careful to realize that our freedom in Christ should never be used as an excuse to just do whatever we want and lose sight of seeking to honor God. That our desire would be that he would be glorified. There's a passage in Isaiah that I, I think is helpful. While it's directed to Israel, there's a, there's a principle there that I think is valuable for us to consider. In Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, it says this, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, but finding your own pleasure or seeking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That there was a principle, and the Lord was encouraging Israel, don't view this as a negative, but delight in me. Well, I think that's a wonderful principle that we can seek to apply. How can I delight in the Lord? Because the Lord's day should not be a straitjacket. 
But it should also challenge our tendency towards spiritual lethargy. Do you delight in worshiping God? Do you, do you delight in spiritual things? Or do you find singing to the Lord and speaking to Him in prayer and, and hearing His words rather tedious? You know, if, if praising God and hearing from Him is tedious, you're not going to enjoy heaven. You know, people who don't have an appetite for spiritual things get full very quickly. They'll say a little bit goes a long way. And, and, and I could point out that it's the Lord's day, not just the Lord's hour. Do we let him have first place on the entire day or do we say, Lord, we, I gave you so many minutes. Preacher went, went long, you got more than an hour. Do we really say, this is a day where I delight in him? What is it that refreshes us? Do we re- are we refreshed with fellowship with God's people, with corporate worship? Coming together ought to really encourage and help set our focus for the coming week. Some of you go into very difficult work situations and around a lot of unbelievers, and you need this encouragement to strengthen you. And that's one of the reasons we encourage the fellowship, and we've actually scheduled that for today. But, but if we aren't coming to, to worship the Lord rejuvenate our soul and encourage other people spiritually, do we really have the right motivation? I mean, what is it that refreshes us? Do you need that corporate worship? I do. I need to be around other believers. And we all really need it more than we need mindless entertainment. So what is the purpose of the Lord's day? Well, one of the purposes is to worship. Another one, the Lord's day is for rest. And that's speaking of spiritual rejuvenation, reflection, that, that there is a spiritual focus in what we're doing, that God is honored when Christians celebrate His resurrection on the Lord's Day. He takes notice of how we worship. It's His church. It takes a, and, and, and I'll tell you what's convicting in this to me, it's, it takes a commandment to make some of us rest. You know, six days you shall labor, but you need to rest. It's like, Really? Now, that's one of the areas I've been convicted about in studying this. Eugene Peterson said, nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness. I read that and said, ouch. Faithless? Like maybe I don't trust God that things will get done if I don't do it? He's actually got things under control as creator? Graceless? because I get frazzled and snap at people? That we're unloving and unchristlike in our spirit because of the pressure of the projects and programs and we lose sight of people? It is a day to rest. There's opportunity to step back. When God rested, it wasn't because he was tired, but it was a reflection on his marvelous work. That we can reflect on his marvelous work. When he saw that it was very good, do we remember the Lord's rest Or do we just find the same escapes our culture does? That they live for the weekend. Do we see it as the week end of the weekend or the first day of the week? I would say another one is the Lord's Day is a day for mercy and ministry. One of the things that Jesus highlighted was that the Sabbath was a day to do good. And this is what really irked the Pharisees when he would heal on the sick. And, and they were infuriated that he would do healing, like he was working. He just spoke. 
It's like pushing an elevator button. That's work. But it, that was their system. And they would rather people be sick than healed on the Sabbath. And, and our Lord pushed that because he was stressing that, that the Sabbath is subservient to people. And understanding that, that, that doing mercy, doing good, is a good thing. That God's given us time to do what we need to do. That this is a, we ought to intentionally be looking to, to do good. To do mercy and ministry. To say, I'm too tired to help. I'm too tired to teach. I'm too tired to go to church. I can't do a one. It's like, well, what are we doing with the time God gives us? Because God has given us all the time we need to do everything He wants. So where are we using his time? It's a day for fellowship. And that's why we've structured these times. That's why we have small groups. You need to be in a small group. We're doing the end of our summer growth series, but in the fall and September, we'll be starting up with our adult Bible fellowships. Those small groups are where you get connected. Those are, those are some, often where our prayer requests are shared and needs are met. Our, our care and share groups during the week. The purpose of this is that you would get connected with a church family because fellowship is part of God's plan for your life. It's part of our service. The Lord's Day is a great day for ministry. It shouldn't be a day of drudgery. But we also see in this that true believers find rest in the finished work of Christ for salvation. We need to celebrate the rest that there is, that Christ completed the work. It is finished, is what he cried on the cross. That the work of redemption is done. And our rest, and that's really the shadow that is now fulfilled in the substance of Christ, is that it, that rest is complete in Christ. Now, if you are trying to work to earn favor, if you say, well, I think if my good works outweigh my bad works, God will accept me, you don't understand the work of Christ. And that's the very reason we come together is because the finished work of salvation is done in Christ. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, really the entire chapter, but I want to just show you verses 9 through 11, it speaks of this rest. In Hebrews 4, 9, it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also created from his works as God did his has ceased from his works as God did his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The context is a lot of Israel didn't enter his rest because they didn't obey. We are complete in Christ. That rest is complete. Therefore, I don't view Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the Christian Sabbath. There's a freedom that we have. But it's a freedom within Christ. And we have to make sure that we have the right priorities, that we can revel in the rest of redemption, and not just one day a week. But as we come together, our hearts ought to be stirred, that we ought to be warmed. You know, how sad to have people melting in our record-setting Arizona heat that have cold spiritual hearts. That's one of the reasons we come together, to stir one another as it says in Hebrews later on, that you would provoke to love and good works, encourage in love and good works, and do so even more as the day is approaching. We're closer to the end than when that was written. 
So do you see the first day of the week as, as a day that sets your heart and mind on the Lord and gives you strength for the coming week? Or is it just the end of the weekend? It's the catch-up day for the things that didn't get done. Is it a catch-up day or a consecrated day? Do you structure your life around the Lord's day or the Lord's day around your life? Because if you don't prioritize and plan for the Lord's day, you can be certain that Satan will. He does have a plan, and it's not to worship God. So I would conclude with this question. Is corporate worship the immovable object in your week? You're here today, and that's great. We can rejoice together. But it's not just one time. It's, it's that by worshiping God consistently, as He deserves, and He wants us to worship Him. The, the pattern was set at creation. We're not under the Mosaic law. That's fulfilled in Christ. The rest is complete in Christ. But I think there are principles that we can ponder and apply that we would strive to be faithful and demonstrate that spiritual rest that we have in Jesus Christ. Are you resting in Him as your Redeemer this morning? And if so, are we rejoicing to worship Him as our Redeemer, not just this morning, but each day, because He will provide all that we need. Let's look to the Lord.